if you turn in your Bibles to Malachi chapter 4, here we are at the end of our journey through this book. Believe it or not, 16 messages in the book of Malachi. Not a short series, but hopefully one that was helpful to you. And I hope today's message will be helpful as well. I'll start off with a little story from uh, someone that I really respect that told this story. It's actually a true story, so um, don't think that this is all just made up for the purpose of illustration. This is really a true story. It happened a little after noon on Mother's Day many years ago. And according to the National News Report, 27-year-old Michael Murray decided to take his two children to the medical center in Massachusetts where their mother was on duty as a surgical nurse. The family wanted to drop off some Mother's Day presents there to her, a gold necklace with the words, number one mom, and a single rose. With their mission accomplished, the father with his two children made their way back to the car, which was parked in the darkened indoor hospital parking garage. And as they reached the vehicle, Murray gently set the infant seat and the three-month-old Matthew on the sunroof of the car and turned his attention to buckling Matthew's 20-month-old sister into her seat. Without thinking any further, further, Murray slid into the driver's seat and drove off, forgetting that Matthew was still on the roof of the car. Moving slowly from the dark garage into the bright sunlight, Murray proceeded to drive through busy streets toward Interstate 290. Despite heavy traffic, nobody beeped, waved, or flagged him down or attempted to warn him that anything was wrong. Pulling onto the expressway that cuts through the city, the driver accelerated to 50 miles an hour and then heard it, a scraping on the roof of his car as the tiny seat with Matthew strapped in began to slide. As Murray recounted the scene, he said, I looked to where Matthew should have been in the car, and then in the rearview mirror, I saw him sliding down the highway in his infant seat. That's where he landed, in the middle of the interstate, in the path of oncoming traffic. Now, before I tell you the outcome of this very real, emotionally paralyzing experience, I want you to know that three-month-old Matthew, as someone insightfully noted, is a picture of a whole generation of children and people, families, who are growing up in our world, sliding down the highway, unprotected toward oncoming tra traffic, and no one seems to care. Indeed, little Matthew is representative of not only children, but an entire generation of spiritual children, churchgoers, religious practitioners, if you will, who have no idea that anything is wrong or that they are in the midst of danger, sliding uncontrollably toward the brink of disaster, trusting in a safety device that has no power to deliver them. Instead of being secure in the Father's presence and under his protective care through a right relationship with him, many are strapped into a safety seat of their own design, outside the desire and the design of a father 
who truly loves them and wants the best for them. A couple of weeks, we're going to be celebrating Father's Day. And as Father's Day approaches, it seems appropriate that we are presenting this last message in our series on the book of Malachi. Spiritually speaking, what happened to young Matthew, however, could never happen to God's children. God has not forgotten his people and left them sliding hopelessly and helplessly into the threat of certain destruction. That's where the illustration here breaks down. Rather, our Heavenly Father has warned us of the clear danger of what happens when a generation, such as the one in Malachi's day, willingly chooses to slide through life unprotected, unconnected, and on their own. Malachi chapter 4. Let's look at, well, let's look at the, all six verses in this chapter. I've already preached through one through three, but I'll read them to give you some context. Malachi 4, verse 1. For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff, and the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. And you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. You will tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day which I am preparing, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and ordinances which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet. Before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord, he will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. With that warning comes the knowledge that ours is also a generation wild, spinning wildly out of control and in need of direction. And although Malachi calls upon the entire nation to return to the Lord, I want to apply that call to all of us here today. What will it take to survive the day that God has said will surely come in this passage? What will it take? One thing. How will the family of God endure? Only one way. How will your kids be spiritually protected from the oncoming traffic? There's only one hope. And it's by leading the way to return, in returning to the Lord where they will be spiritually secured and strapped in where they ought to be in the personal presence and personal care of a heavenly Father who loves them and cares for them. That's the message of Malachi 4, 4 to 6. That the spiritual restoration of the nation, the family, or your own soul depends on our personal return to the Lord. And how are we going to do that? Well, I think three ways according to Malachi here. Number one, Malachi says in verse 4, remember God's truth. Restoration begins when, when we begin to remember God's word. Verse 4, remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and ordinances which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. Malachi didn't really mess around, did he, with his words? 
That's because God doesn't mess around. In light of everything that's been said in this book concerning the people, the covenant, and God's faithfulness despite their own disobedience, Malachi's closing words aim straight at the heart of the issue. We need to remember, he says. Come back to true north. And the Hebrew word remember simply means to mark. To mark. So as to be recognized. In other words, Malachi is saying, find your mark. Find your mark. Think back to where it all began to make sense. Recalibrate yourself and your life to what is true. Get your bearings straight, is what he's really saying. What are these people supposed to remember? And specifically here in verse 4, Malachi says, Remember the law of Moses, my servant. The Ten Commandments. What's the application to you and me? Christ's word to the church at Sardis in the New Testament in Revelation chapter 3 sounds strikingly familiar and gives us a little bit of a hint. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 3, this is what Christ says to that church. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard, obey it and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what time I will come to you. That's at the end of the book. The end of the New Testament. Strikingly similar to the end of the Old Testament. Remember God's clear word on the issues of life is what Malachi is saying and what Jesus is saying. Mark the principles, the statutes, the commands, and the things which clearly define what God's heart is all about. And by the way, the term remember also implies action. It's not just something to call to mind. It's something we need to get our feet on and do. The idea isn't limited to simply recalling it, but the command is to obey it as well. It's an imperative here. Remember, Malachi says, it's a command. And the thrust of his message and his words are recall it and do it. Perform it. Malachi here was calling the nation to put all of God's words and ordinances which were given to his people as, he, as they entered into covenant with God at Sinai, back at the Mount Horeb, bring them all back into public view, he's saying. Bring them into public view, remember them, and into personal practice, obey them. Make no mistake, the attempt to remove God's word from a recognized place in society was no different than than it is today. It was no different then than it is today. We think that it's something brand new that the government wants to keep the Ten Commandments out of courtrooms, prayer out of classrooms, and Bibles out of war zones. We think that's new. It's not new. It's not a new idea. Man's attempt to muzzle God's word and to consciously avoid our personal responsibility to obey it is not a contemporary crisis. It's been around since Adam, Eve, 
and the serpent decided to form a committee to discuss the relevance and the reality of God's discrimination against a certain kind of fruit and whether or not we should tolerate the eating of it. That's how long that's been around. Face it, folks, we're all drawn to the temptation to forget God's word like a duck to water. And so are our children. And if we're not being intentional about putting God's word and his principles and statutes and ordinances into their remembrance as well as into our own, then we are literally letting the country, the family, slide out of control, out of our grasp, and into the fast lane of life on a collision course with deadly traffic. Malachi says, remember the basic revelation of God's will. His timeless word, that's what will keep you, your children, and the nation on track. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Obey it and repent, is what he's saying. Read Exodus chapters 19 to 24 this week. In fact, the New Bibles turn to Exodus chapter 19 and verse 3. Just for a moment. Exodus 19, verse 3. Moses went up to God, and the Lord called him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the sons of Israel. Now look at verse 5. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. Unless you think that they were just talking, God was just talking to Israel, that verse is repeated in the New Testament. Peter reiterates it and says that we are those people, God's holy possession, a kingdom of priests a holy nation. The church, chapter 20, verse 1. Then God spoke all these words, saying, and then from the next few verses all the way down to verse 17, we find the Ten Commandments. I'm not going to read them all to you, but you know them, right? You know them all, right? You got them down, right? Read them this week. Recall them, remember them. Skip over to Exodus chapter 24 for a moment. So Moses gives them the Ten Commandments written by the finger of God, the Old Testament says. And then in Exodus chapter 24, verse 3, then Moses came and recounted to the people all the words of the Lord and all the ordinances and all the people answered with one voice and said, listen to this, now underline it, all the words which the Lord has spoken, we will do. Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. Skip down to verse seven. Then he took the book of the covenant and he read it in the hearing of the people, kind of like I'm doing right now to you. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. So Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant, 
which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. In other words, what they were doing was ratifying this covenant, sealed in blood. And what did they say? All that the Lord has spoken, what? We will do. Ever said that? Have you ever said that to the Lord? Israel said that to the Lord. And now we find ourselves in the book of Malachi and they've completely forgotten about all they said, about all that God said, about the covenant, about the blood sprinkled in it on them. And Malachi says, remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and the ordinances which I, am, I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel, all of you, remember it, recall it. In the book of Deuteronomy, Moses recounted all of the Ten Commandments. The book of Deuteronomy, the word Deuteronomy means second law giving. Interestingly, the word remember is used 14 times in that book as an exhortation to Israel concerning the covenant law. Skip over to Deuteronomy now for a moment. I just want to point a few things out to you. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 1. Now, O Israel... Listen to the statutes and the judgments which I am teaching you to perform so that you may live and go in and take possession of the land which the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. Verse 5, see, I have taught you statutes and judgments just as the Lord my God commanded me that you should do thus in the land where you are entering to possess it. So keep and do them for that is, now watch this, that is your, what's it say? Wisdom. And your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes and say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as is the Lord our God whenever we call on him? Oh, to hear people in other countries say that about America. Are they saying that? That is far from what they're saying today. Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people who has a God so near to it that he listens whenever we call on his name. I can tell you they're not saying that because we're not that nation anymore. Just like Israel slid out of control and became a nation that did not obey nor remember God's word. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 1. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the judgments which the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you that you might do them in the land where you're going over to possess it so that you and your son and your grandson might fear the Lord your God to keep all his statutes and his commandments which I command you all the days of your life and that your days may be prolonged. O Israel, you should listen and be careful to do it that it may be well with you and that you may multiply greatly just as the Lord promised in the land flowing with milk and honey. Now listen to this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. And you shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house 
and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And then it shall come about when the Lord your God brings you into the land which he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you great and splendid cities which you did not build. Basically, he says, he's going to bless you. You shall have these statutes and ordinances and teachings in the front of your mind is what he's saying and it should be on your lips. Let me ask you, are you remembering these things in your lives? Parents, are you teaching them to your children? What are you teaching them if not these things? In a past U.S. News and World Report article entitled Growing Up Old, one 13-year-old boy unashamedly reveals the incredible cultural slide many parents have taken away from their God-established responsibility. This is the kid, 13-year-old boy. Quote, I put a picture of the Playboy playmate Stephanie on my wall because I think she's hot. The Barbie twins are pretty good looking. Also, my mom got the pictures for me. Actually, she knows I like that. When we moved in, my room was pretty dull. She wanted me to decorate it. And we had this subscription to Playboy. And we had like a million of them. By the way, you can send in an application for it and they just give it to you. Me and my brother did this when he was 12 and I was 9. We had the Playboy channel from when I was like 6 to when I was 10. We would watch it every night. Sure, this may be the radical exception, but how far off are we in our own lives? Do you have a compass to direct you in the way you and your family should go? What is that compass? Is it God's timeless truth? Or your so-called enlightened opinion? Or the culture's enlightened opinion. You may say, well, pastor, we're not under the law of the Old Testament. We're under the grace of the New Testament. Read Romans 6 and Romans 5. I mean, Galatians 5. But it was for freedom that Christ set us free. But don't use that freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, Paul said. Why do we need to recall these Old Testament laws? The fact is, folks, that the Old Testament Mosaic law as a rule of life for Israel has been superseded by the New Testament law of Christ for the Christian. But Christ not only fulfilled the law, but he is the fulfillment of it. If we are his followers, we will not live contrary to what the spirit of that law says. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5 for a moment. Matthew chapter 5. Verse 17. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Jesus says, Do not think that I came to abolish the law of the, or the prophets. I didn't come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. 
Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called the least in the kingdom of God, of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. If you read what we have to vote on and what things are being proposed in our culture today, you would clearly say that somewhere along the line, somebody annulled some of the commandments in the Old Testament or is teaching people to do it. Where do we stand on those issues? See, although we are considered no longer considered to be under the law, we as Christ's followers still practice the righteousness of the law through the power of the Spirit who indwells us. Amen? We remember it because it is God's inspired word. It is authoritative. It's infallible, inerrant, and totally trustworthy. The same God who gave Moses the Ten Commandments is the one true living God who gave us the Gospels. Amen? And the epistles, amen? And he doesn't change his mind about truth, does he? His word is consistent, complete, and all of it is profitable for life, and it will not fade away. Romans 15, 4 says, For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It straightens us out. It teaches us to do what is right. It is God's way of preparing us in every way, fully equipped for every good thing God wants us to do. Prophet Isaiah in chapter 40, verse 8 says, The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God lasts forever. In Psalm 119, 89, we read that forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. That means it sticks. God's call to the people of Malachi's day to remember the covenant they had entered into with God can be similarly applied to God's people, his church today. Learn from the past. Remember it. Rehearse it. Recover the truth of it, but don't repeat its mistakes. If we're going to renew our nation's fear of God, refresh its vision of hope, and rekindle the flame of faith, then it's going to start, you know where? Right here. Right here with us. For restoration to take place, we begin by remembering the past precepts of God. And inevitably, when we immerse ourselves in God's word, we are brought face to face with the fact that we have fallen far short of his expectations, his desire. Not only have we fallen short, but in actuality, we've gone running in the opposite direction. It's then we need to move from remembering to something much more concrete to realigning. And so the second thing Malachi says here is repent of the lies. 
Restoration is birthed by turning from sin and returning to God. Verse 5. Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming great and terrible day of the Lord, and he will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Repentance. That's the operative word here. The one which makes our ears tingle and our minds shut down because nobody wants to hear about repentance. We don't like to hear it. We don't like to deal with it. But I have news for you. Neither did the people of Malachi's day. But that didn't stop God's messenger from declaring what God had declared to him. That in the end, before the great day of judgment, when the lines would finally be drawn, God would send his prophet Elijah to restore, or literally the word says turn, which is the word for repentance, to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and vice versa. Now there is a truckload of theology in verses 5 and 6. God emphatically says here, look, Take notice of this, people. I'm sending you Elijah the prophet. I'm going to give you another shot at turning around before I come and judge. Pay attention. Come back home. That's what he's saying. After Malachi, no other major prophetic voice was heard in Israel until John the Baptist came on the scene. And you know how long that was? 400 years. 400 years, it's known as a period of silence. 400 years of silence. For 400 years, God was silent. That's a long time to be without a message from God for a nation. We have this verse that people use, people preach on all the time, and I hear it all the time, and I just heard it this last week. And people use it semi out of context. If I start it, you'll be able to finish it, I'm sure. It's Proverbs 29, 18. Where there is no vision, the people perish. Okay? The rest of that verse says, but he that keepeth the law, happy is he. Where there is no vision, the people perish. You know how I hear that preached all the time from pastors? It's about vision casting. About what the church is going to do. But all the plans that we have in the church for building and for going out and reaching out, where there is no vision, the people perish. Got to have a vision. That's not what that verse says. Let me read it to you in the NIV. Where there is no revelation, the people cast off restraint. But blessed is he who keeps the law. Does that give you a little better picture? Let me read it to you now in the NCV, New Century Version. Where there is no word from God, people are uncontrolled, but those who obey what they have been taught are happy. Now let me give it to you in the, the Good News Bible, okay? Today's English version. I think it says it the best way that we can understand it. A nation without God's guidance is a nation without order. Isn't that relevant? Here's the end of the verse. Happy are those who keep God's law. 
God had given Israel 400 years to reflect on what he had said. He was giving them time to turn around. There's a side note here, theological side note for you students of the scripture. There's a lot of theological debate about whether verse 5 refers to the literal return of Elijah himself or whether it applies to John the Baptist who came in the spirit and power of Elijah. Did John the Baptist fulfill the coming of Elijah prophesied here in Malachi 4, 5? Does it matter? Well, of course it does. It's in the Bible, it matters. Will the answer you arrive at affect your eternal salvation? Not hardly. But for those who, who want to know this issue in more detail, I'd be happy to pass on more information as well as a paper I've written on it. But I'm going to skip right ahead and not deal with that because that would take another sermon to deal with. Suffice it to say that if you care to understand nothing else about this passage of Scripture, these two verses, please understand that the blatant fact that God reveals himself in this passage as a God of grace is what we need to focus on. He desires that no one should perish, but for all to come to repentance. And since the beginning of human history, God has revealed to us the warning of judgment as well as his way to salvation so that we would have a way of escape. He always reveals it. That revelation has been progressively unveiled one step at a time throughout biblical history, ultimately culminating in the death, burial, and resurrection and appearance of Jesus Christ, our Savior. God has always provided men and women with the knowledge of what he's doing in human history. In fact, that's in the Bible. Amos chapter 3, verse 7 says this, Surely the Lord does nothing unless he reveals his secret counsel to his servants, the prophets. So we have been told. God is intimately concerned with your salvation. Elijah's message, Malachi's point in John the Baptist's ministry was to announce the coming judgment and to call people to turn back to God. The word restore here used in verse 5 just means that, to turn. And it's interesting that the ministry of both Elijah and John the Baptist is to turn the hearts of fathers to their children and children to their fathers and ultimately toward God. And literally, I believe what Malachi is implying here is that the hearts of this apostate people that he's talking to must be turned back to the faith of their patriarchal fathers who had entered into covenant with God. Could there be any more relevant exhortation to today's society? Unless the hearts of the fathers and children are turned away from sin and toward, turned toward faith in Jesus Christ, there will never, ever be restoration Never. And again, the responsibility begins with you and me. We need to repent of the way we're presently living and admit that at least part, at least part of the problems of our culture are a direct result of our failure to be the spiritual kind of leaders that God commands us to be. Plain and simple. We have to share the responsibility and repent of it. And that demands a real and radical change of lifestyle, one which completely submits itself to the demands and delights of our God and our Father. 
and is willing to turn away from the selfish and sinful patterns that we're so accustomed to following. As I thought about this message this week and the, the heaviness of it, and this passage on restoring the hearts of fathers to their children and vice versa, it occurred to me that there are, in fact, very few examples in Scripture of good father-son relationships. Think about that. Very few. I challenge you this week to find five. Five biblical examples of a good father-son relationship. You'll have to do some looking. It's tough. But I'll tell you what, there's plenty of negative examples. Hey, think about it. Noah and Ham. Isaac and Jacob. David and Absalom. Saul and Jonathan, Solomon and Rehoboam, Eli and his sons. But the one example that I think has the clearest lessons for us today in contemporary society is Lot and his sons. As you read through Genesis chapters 13 and 19, you find that although Lot was a fine public servant to the community, he wasn't such a great leader in his home. And a brief overview of Lot's leadership in his home shows that he made five fatal mistakes, a pattern which unfortunately is all too familiar to us. I just want to briefly go through that with you. Turn to Genesis chapter 13. Genesis 13. So here we are. Genesis and uh, I mean Abraham and Lot. They're traveling, journeying together. All of a sudden, they've got lots and lots of flocks and the herdsmen are all arguing with each other and the next thing you know, there's not enough land for them. And so the deal is, is Abraham says, hey, we need to separate from each other. Our herdsmen are fighting with each other. Abraham says to Lot, look over all this land. Pick whichever land you want. I'll go the other way. Okay, he's being very generous here because God gave Abraham all the land, right? the Abrahamic covenant. Abraham says in verse 8, Please let there be no strife between you and me, nor between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brothers. Is not the whole land before you? Separate from me, please. If to the left, I'll go to the right. If to the right, I'll go to the left. Lot lifted up his eyes and saw all the valley of the Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt as you go to Zoar. So Lot chose for himself all the valley of the Jordan, and Lot journeyed eastward. Thus they separated from each other. Abraham settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled in the cities of the valley and moved his tents as far as Sodom. Mark that. First thing in Lot's life was that he had a misplaced emphasis on material good instead of what was spiritually good. Lot placed a lot of emphasis on the material rather than spiritual prosperity. He walked by sight and not by faith. And he ended up planting his family in a place destined for destruction. He didn't know about it then, but he was just operating on what he saw. The land looked good. I'm going to move that way. And Lot's not the only one to make those kinds of wrong decisions. Any Christian can be walking with God and begin to look around and see something that looks really good to them 
that might be more fun or more interesting to them than the kingdom of God, and that person then takes his eyes off Christ and finds himself drifting just a little ways away. And that's the first step. The downward spiral begins when we take our eyes off God's desires and follow our own. Second thing Lot did is found in Genesis 13. Look at verse 13. Now the men of Sodom were wicked exceedingly and sinners against the Lord. Lot foolishly immersed his family in the middle of a sin-soaked city and expected them to not become entrenched in it. Yet again, God gave him an opportunity to change. Because after Lot became assimilated into the city of Sodom, a coalition of kings, in chapter 14, came together against the city and captured a number of the inhabitants, including Lot and his family. Okay, you can read about that in chapter 14. Word gets back to Abraham that his nephew had been captured by these leaders. Any other man might have been justified and said something like, serves him right. But not Abraham. Abraham went to Lot's rescue. Abraham gathered his servants, his military men, went after the men that held Lot. He rescued his nephew and his family by defeating the kings and gave Lot and his family their lives and freedom back. Freedom of a sort. Because what did Lot then do? Instead of allowing this incident to serve as a wake-up call to him, Lot took his family and went straight back to Sodom and moved in again. Instead of making the break with a way of life that almost cost him his life and his family's lives, Lot decided to keep serving himself and his own interests by going back to the wicked city of Sodom. Mistake number three. Lot had a mistaken expectation. He assumed, as we read Genesis chapter 19, that he could change his society and culture without taking a firm stand for the Lord. He could just do it by his lifestyle. He could just be present in the sin soaked society. And because he had faith in God, that would rub off somehow and change his society. He could be tolerant of what was going on around him without taking a firm stand. And Lot's life became a downward spiral as illustrated by his increasing involvement in the city of Sodom. First, he pitched his tent near Sodom so he could see the city. Next time we meet him, he's living in the city. And in the final appearance that we find him sitting with the elders in the city gate. Verse, chapter 19, verse 1. Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening as Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. You know what it means to sit with the elders in the gate? It means that you're a leader. It means that you're a leader in the city, a community leader. Here's Lot, a leader in the wicked city. Very small step from sanctioning sin in the life of others to participating in that sin oneself once you go down that road. The next thing Lot does is he shows a misleading example. If you look at verse 12, chapter 19, the two men said to Lot, whom else have you here? These are the angels that are going to destroy the city. 
A son-in-law and your sons and your daughters and whomever you have in the city, bring them out of the place. For we are about to destroy this place because their outcry has become so great before the Lord that the Lord has sent us to destroy it. Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law who were were to marry his daughters and said, Up, get out of this place for the Lord will destroy the city. Now notice what that line says. Underline it. What's it say? But he appeared to his sons-in-law to be jesting. His philosophy toward how his family should live all this time seemed to be, do as I say, not as I do. When he went and told them to get out of there, they didn't believe him. They laughed at him. They thought he was joking. Soren Kierkegaard once said that it happened that a fire broke out backstage in a theater and a clown came out to inform the public They thought it was just a jest and applauded. He repeated his warning and they shouted even louder. So I think the world, he says, will come to an end amid general applause from all the wits who believe it is a joke. Lot had mishandled his entanglements as well. Verse 15, when morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, or you will be swept away in the punishment of the city. But... He hesitated. He hesitated. So the men seized his hand and the hand of his wife and the hands of his two daughters for the compassion of the Lord was upon him and they brought him out and put him outside the city. He didn't want to leave. God's compassion was so great on him that he had to drag him out of the place and he went kicking and screaming. He didn't realize just how much the world had gripped him, his family, and tragically his own wife until it was all too late. He had an insensitivity to God's voice finally. He couldn't even understand what God was trying to tell him. And he didn't want to listen. He was arguing with God. He was so immersed in the world system. And the last picture that we have of Lot, in chapter 19 and verse 30 and following, is his committing incest with his daughters after having escaped God's destruction of Sodom. He participated in the same perverted sexual immorality that Sodom was known for when he first pitched his tents on the outskirts of the city. In a drunken stupor, he fathered children by his own daughters, daughters he had offered to the men of Sodom for their own sexual pleasure just a short time before. Lot's life was a downward spiral of bad choices that led him to become the ultimate self-gratifier. Had Lot recognized the pattern of these mistakes, he most likely could have corrected them. Yet as one man has said, he had slowly drifted into a spiritual anemia. He was numb to the voice of God. What a graphic picture of what blind spots in our lives are capable of bringing, isn't it? As a young Mexican boy, he showed up at the official U.S. border crossing several times a week. He'd approach the crossing on a bicycle and always had two bags of sand slung over his shoulders. The guards were suspicious, of course, that some type of contraband might be concealed in the bags of sand. Even when they made him empty the bags out, they could find nothing and were always forced 
to let him through. One day, however, one of the Border Patrol agents ran into the young man in a restaurant and struck up a conversation with him. He finally convinced the young man to tell him what he had been smuggling into the United States on the promise that he wouldn't press charges. And the young man said, bicycles. I was smuggling bicycles. You know what that story reminds me of? How easy it is for us to miss that which, in hindsight, is painfully, painfully obvious. What is the enemy of our souls trying to smuggle into our lifestyles? And we see it day in and day out in our culture. And we just let it pass. And we don't even realize he's doing it until it's too late. If there's a need in our day, it's for a complete turnaround of these kinds of patterns. The hearts of the fathers must be turned to the children and the children to the fathers. And it's not going to happen until we become intentional about remembering God's word, repenting of the lies, and receiving God's grace through the transforming power of the Holy Spirit of God. It just won't happen. And that's precisely what Malachi was addressing here. And that is, let me just read you one more scripture before we wind this up. Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 11 to 17. Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. For it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret, but all things become visible when they are exposed by the light, for everything that becomes visible is light. For this reason, it says, Awake, sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And that, my friends, is the solution to turning our society, our churches, and our families, and our own lives around. Restoration will only come when we remember God's word, repent of the lies, and when we finally choose to receive the life. Restoration is complete when we commit ourselves to Jesus Christ. This is the testimony, wrote the Apostle John. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life, and he who does not have the Son does not have the life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. There's no other way, no other truth, no other hope. Salvation in Christ is the bridge not only to God but to each other. So disturbing was this last word of Malachi to the Jews that even to this day, when the Jews read this passage of Scripture, they're instructed to repeat verse 5 so that they don't end on the word curse. It's the last word in this text. 
And it's interesting. It seems odd that the Old Testament scripture should end with the word curse. When we get near the end of the New Testament in Revelation, we read, and there shall be no more curse. All of creation is eagerly awaiting the return of the Savior, and we too should be expecting him. And we should be modeling that for our kids and for our nation. Jesus is looking for men and women in our generation. He has in every generation to become role models and spiritual leaders who will turn the tide of a disintegrating society. Are you willing to be that role model? Now, I know I've kept you here a long time today, but I want to tell you the end of the story about little Matthew. Car seat flew off the roof, hit the highway, and was sliding down the road almost as fast as the oncoming traffic. An antiques dealer named James Boothby was following the Murray car when he saw this event unfold. Right before his eyes, he saw young Matthew sail off the roof of the car and hit the road. He said, I saw something in the air, and at first I thought someone had thrown some garbage out the window. Then I thought it was a doll. And then he said, the doll opened its mouth. And I realized that this was a little baby that had just landed on the road. It bounced a couple of times and it never tipped over in the car seat. The car seat just landed and slid down the road. He said, I slammed on my brakes and turned my car around in the lane so that no other car could go by and I jumped from my car. I ran and found the uninjured baby, uninjured, in an undamaged car seat and I scooped him up in my arms and took him back to his petrified father. <laughs> As the man said when I heard this story first told, I don't know what you'd call a class A, grade A miracle, but this has got to be one. And I can't imagine how that father explained this to his wife when he got home. <laughs> Probably left that one out. <laughs> Michael Murray got a wake-up call that day. Spiritually speaking, shouldn't we? Are we paying attention to the spiritual safety of our families, our friends, our country, our world, by teaching and living out what it means to have true faith in Christ? Or are we letting it all slide uncontrollably toward an irreversible tragedy? Friends, we can make a difference in the traffic. We can. Remember God's truth. Repent of the lies and receive the life. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for the words of truth that you have given us through your prophet and servant Malachi. And really, they're your words because this is a God-inspired, God-breathed book. May we apply all that we have learned in this book to our lives that we may make a difference in this world as you work through us. And we pray that our lives would give you glory and honor and praise in everything we do and say. Help us hold tight to you as we eagerly wait, await your return. We pray it in Jesus' precious name who is coming again. And everyone agreed and said, Amen.